Hey, this is Todd Burns from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, our regular podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. On November 16th, 2015, Laurie Anderson joined us on the lecture couch in Paris in the wake of the devastating attacks in the city the previous weekend. She felt it was an important moment to talk about how art and artists respond to tragedy. In this talk, she outlined the circumstances behind her 2015 Park Avenue Armory work, Habeas Corpus, and how its themes relate to what took place in Paris only a few days earlier. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. For now, enjoy this bit of Couch Wisdom. Now, I wanted to just show you a project that I did uh, in New York because there was a question someone was talking about. What about a political work of art? And this was uh, something that I, I did last month, but it started out 15 years ago. And so I'm going to give you the slightly long version of this story because it goes through many media. And I know that a lot of you are working on, on different kinds of aspects of media. So... Uh, this involves a lot of uh, a lot of tech and a lot of number crunching and music and imagery and writing. So it kind of goes winding through all of these things. It started out 15 years ago when there I got an invitation from a, a place called Krems. Anybody know where Krems is? It's an hour from Vienna. It's a, a small town where they have they have really pretty good um, music festivals there. They have the Downau Fest, Downau Festival. Anybody been at that one? It's really Pretty great festival. And um, uh, anyway, they, they asked me there to do a, a big sound installation. So it was in a 13th century church. And this is a, um, a, a building that was huge and reverberant and, and had been through a lot of changes. So it was a, it was a church. It was a um, pilgrim flop house for a while. And then it was a cultural center, that kind of usage arc. So it was kind of, uh, I went there and I tried to, do a lot of things because sound installations are some things I, I do try to make a, a violin the size of a build a 10-story building, you know, using lots of harmonics in different kinds of ways that you can structure sound or use speakers. And so I was thinking of trying to do something like that. But I was just striking out on an idea. I, I just didn't know how to control the sound in that building or what to do. And I was like, and the curators are going, well, so what's your idea? I was like, I don't know. And it was getting uh, past the point of you know, politeness it was like, don't you have an idea? No, I don't. <laughs> so I went up to the church bell tower, this crumbling old bell tower, and I looked over, and in the middle of this perfect little Austrian town is a maximum security prison. And there's a guy in the guard tower with a machine gun. So I'm in the bell tower, he's in the guard tower looking at each other, and I'm like, yeah. So I said, okay, I got an idea. It came down, and I told the curators, I got this idea. We're going to build a video studio in the prison, and the prisoner's going to sit there for three months, and then we're going to beam this image. We're going to make a life-size cast of the, of the person and put it on the apse of the church. So we're going to beam the image and wrap it onto this three-dimensional image of the person in the church. And it's going to be about the function of telepresence in our culture, what what happens, and, and also the the attitude towards the body of the church and the prison, you know, incarnation, incarceration, there, not there. And surprisingly, the curators go, okay. I was like, hmm, stop me now. <laughs> so then actually, 
couple of days later, they said, you know what? They realized that Austrian law actually forbids the use of a prisoner's image because a prisoner no longer owns his own image. Some holdover from an Austro-Hungarian empire, you know, of, of what, who do you, what, what do you own in this culture? Kind of a 21st century problem, problem, problem too, you know, image ownership. So anyway, they don't own their images. So I was like, okay, good. I'm kind of off the hook because by this point, it wasn't seeming like a really great idea to beam the image of a prisoner into a church in conservative Austria. It wasn't seeming too bright. So, so you did it in New York instead. Well, this is a, this is a couple jumps down the line, but I did do it in New York. Um, and anyway, uh, I um, I actually d- did it first in um, in Milan. So this was 15 years after that. First, uh, the Whitney asked me to Whitney Museum asked me to do something. So I set it up with Sing Sing Prison. Let's look at two guarded institutions. You know, what do you what do you have in there? that you're guarding, you know, so you have the, so we were going to beam the prisoner down the river uh, and put him in a, uh, the cast of the person in New York. Um, that turned out not to work because it was considered a little bit too political, basically, because um, at that time, um, there was a lot of um, hoo-ha about stuff like, you know, uh, privatization of prisons. And, of course, that was when suddenly... Uh, the statistics were looking bad. One in every 100 Americans is in prison. And boop, you look at the blip, the jump, when suddenly they're privatized. Uh, and of course, what do you need if you're a company that runs a prison? You need prisoners. Prisoners. So you get them any way you can. So the Rockefeller drug law was invoked. So a lot of artists were thrown into prison for not selling, but just holding a joint. You could get 10 years. If you're smoking, you could get life. The Rockefeller drug law. Now, it's not always invoked, but it was invoked a lot around that time. Anyway, I was describing this project to Germano Chillant, who's a curator of the Guggenheim Museum. Half an hour later, he goes, I have the prison and the cultural institution. So we did this in Milan at the Prada Foundation. And we it was the most overproduced project I've ever done. It was like, if you looked at the budget, you're just like, well, you know, we dug trenches for the video cables to go from San Vittorio prison to the Prada Foundation. And and I'm looking at the budget going, Germano, we didn't use any concrete. Look at this, you know, it's like a huge number for concrete. I know my cousin Giorgio had, you know, concrete company. We had to get a little advice <laughs> on concrete. It's like, it's Italy. <laughs> Take care of your own. Okay, I'm on. I'm on. Now I get it. It's like it's cool. And and so uh, we were uh, the obviously the biggest creepiest problem with this is collaboration. So you're going to have a prisoner sit there, and then you're going to sign your name for it. And this is my art project. So I needed to find. I took this very seriously to try to find a prisoner who was going to collaborate with me on this and wanted to do it and had a reason to do it. So, we uh, I spent a long time in San Vittorio. Now this is a white collar prison. The, these are the guys who basically dismantled the Italian economy. Um, they are um, very very smart, all speaking Greek and Latin, writing their books. They get to use knives. Uh, they have wine collections. They're all writing their books, their articles. They're like seeing their relatives. All you know, it's they're all wearing Armani. 
and uh, except and everything's cool except for like the the shoes. Cause you look down there, they're they're wearing they're all wearing slippers because they're going nowhere ever. Uh, so anyway, these guys are there, and um, because they're lawyers and because they're very skilled at manipulating things, people, language, everything glances they're manipulating me there's also you know they're they're gradually drawing my attention to the corner until i'm talking to one guy uh they had decided who my collaborator was going to be it was a fiction that i was deciding so i'm talking to this guy santino a bank robber and murderer who had murdered some people on his way out of the bank so i'm talking to santino and i said santino if we do this project together how do you see it? I mean, what, what, what would it be to you? What is it? What do you think? And he said, I see it as a virtual escape. And I said, you're my man. You know, I, I know you understand this. So we did this project, and it was really intense because he, when he's sitting there as a virtual person, imagine like a three-dimensional live movie. He's there in, in the gallery for three months, sitting there like, and People are like, you know, he's not, he trained himself to, to do that. Of course, when we were also working with Sing Sing, when we almost got to do this, it was um, with uh, uh, meditators and people who were trained to three months, three months. It's nothing when you're in for life, you know, and it was called life. His girlfriend came every day to stand there. And he did not look like a prisoner. He looked like a judge because, you know, stillness gives you, and of weird majesty. I decided I wanted to always, I always wanted to do this in New York, in the United States. Um, and so when the Park Avenue Armory asked me to do something, and the Park Avenue Armory is, is just a gigantic uh, thing. It was made in the Civil War time for regiments. They actually, the Silk um, Stocking Regiment were, were the ones who built this. It's a block long, block wide, and a block tall. It's huge. It's enormous. It was built for uh, the, this, this regiment who uh, were kind of Upper East Side guys who needed a, it's a, it's a clubhouse, really, you know. And so um, they weren't actually very good fighters. They were very good in parades and things. And uh, they kept, kept getting mustered for the Civil War because they were getting desperate for, for people. And so they, they would go down to so-called fight. And then they were, you know, after a couple of days, they'd see, you know, these guys can't, really can't do anything. They don't know how to use their swords or they, you know, they just, they, um, and they go, thanks so much. You can go now. You know, thanks. Like, it's been great. But, you know, uh, and then they would get desperate again. They'd come bring them back. And so anyway, it was a little clown show. And um, so I proposed this to the Park Avenue Armory, to the artistic director there. and Because they do, what they do is operas. They do big sound installations. They do all kinds of things at the Park Avenue Armory. It's a really interesting place. So, had you done anything there beforehand? Or was this uh, the first time? I Maybe had I played there? No. No. It's And it's it's a crazy kind of uh, space it's it's um and so we i, I was going to have two rows of um prisoners streaming from upstate prisons because not very many people in new york are so aware of this but this you know the second thing in the economic state structure uh is after insurance is prisons we're a prison state now new yorkers are not going to tell you that because it's not one of those things that you know is on our brochures but that's how we make money. Now, 
state money is minuscule compared to this to the city money, but still, you know, this is this is a a, a big reality. In, in speaking of reality, there are many reality prison shows. If you turn on MSNBC at night, there's seven in a row from midnight till seven a.m. What's a three-point restraint? You know, just there's something that Americans like about watching people be punished. Anyway, that's another thing to talk about. But anyway, um, so I proposed these two rows of like hot suit statues, like facing each other, streaming the images of the prisoners into the park abnormally. We worked for several months on this, and then we got a message from Homeland Security saying, you will never do this project in the United States, ever. And I didn't really see the upside in that statement. <laughs> you know, it didn't seem like there was any possibility. So I, I you don't know how you feel when you're working on a project and you like you're getting in and then somebody just goes, kabash, no. It's, you know, it's, it's hard because you, you put so much energy in it. You just have to, and so the artistic director goes, what's your plan B? And I'm plan B, plan B. I don't have a plan B, you know, it's like always have a plan B, right? Because anyway, I didn't have one. And then I was talking to somebody from the ACLU, American Civil Liberties Union, about this this thing, because I thought, ah, oh, it's really, you know, I thought we could you know, have a little more freedom than that. And he said, he was talking to me, so, you know, I think I have an idea of, of I have some, some um, a group in London uh, called Reprieve, and they work with a lot of prisoners who are on death row in the United States. And they also work with released Guantanamo detainees. And so I called this uh, uh, reprieve in London, and I'm talking to this person who's a, a lawyer, the lead lawyer there, and I'm just kind of saying, well, I have this project, and it's, it's about projection and telepresence and, you know, presence and time and how we go through time. And I realize I am babbling, you know. <laughs> and so um, instead of saying something like, Oh, thank you so much for telling me about your interesting project, Click. She said, uh, tell me more. And this was a woman named Kat Craig, who's head, head of Reprieve in London. So um, she said, I think, uh, we, we had some more conversations, and she said, I think I have somebody who might be interested in doing this. I said, really? So, so she um, introduced me gradually to a man named Mohammed El Garani. Now, he was the youngest detainee at Guantanamo. He had been swept up when he was 14. He spent from 14 till 21 in prison, and he was uh, severely tortured and also in solitary for many years. He had about as much to do with Al-Qaeda as um, you do and as I do. And he was a student, and he decided to—he was a computer guy, and he wanted to learn computers. His uncle had a computer school in Pakistan, so he went there. And the first week he was there, he was swept up by a raid— the Northern Alliance and sold to the U.S. for $5,000, along with everyone else. Um, speaking of profiling, this is pretty much, we got the prisoners we needed to get, and those were Saudis. So um, he was sold and um, packed up and um, blindfolded, shackled, um, and taken to Guantanamo. The U.S. Uh, story was that he was an Al-Qaeda operative in London. Trouble with that story was he was uh, 11 at the time. I mean, these are stories that are just made up, completely, completely fabricated. Um, so, uh, you know, those 11-year-old terrorists, they can be so dangerous. You know? <laughs> it was just completely 
fiction. So um, anyway, uh, habeas corpus, as you know, is the is a, is Latin for um, to have the body, and what it means is it is the order of the court to the prison to say you must give me that prisoner now because you, it is not allowed in since the Magna Carta for the king to throw you in jail forever with no charges and no trial. That's not allowed in, in any civilized country. So we, that's the name of that right is habeas corpus. In the U.S. Constitution, it's absolutely central to what it is. The right to a trial. You can't just be dragged off and not have your say, have your day in court. You can't, they can't do that. So uh, language got around this problem because there was a lot of language and and a lot of legal rhetoric in the days right after 9-11. Because right, like now in a way, people are panicking. They're going, oh my God, you know, we got this is different. This is, this is an exception. This is like not normal. This is like, we have to like. So what they did was they called all of these people. They declared them, first of all, non-persons. So that would mean that they would have no rights, like for in the Geneva Convention, they were just uh, labeled terrorists, period. Didn't matter where they were, who they were, where they'd come from, what they'd done. Was, oh, they had that label. So that meant that we could then uh, keep them as long as we wanted to and torture them as much as we wanted to do. And we did that. Uh, anyway, I met uh, Mohammed in where he lives in West Africa, and what we did was, um, he's a really wonderful guy, he's 27 years old, he's been out for five years, and um, he is, uh, I don't know how he survived this, because uh, also, you know, when you meet someone, it's very different than when you talk about it, when you meet someone, and you realize that your government was responsible for breaking this guy's back, smashing his face, you know, just cutting him everywhere. You, you just, you know. Um, and, of course, uh, he doesn't want to see doctors because American doctors were at all his torture sessions, as were American psychologists also at all his torture sessions. Now, can you say that? No. So I did. Uh, I had to learn a lot of things that you could say and you couldn't say. So, for example... You can't say American doctors were at all his torture sessions. You can say that uh, the behavioral science consultancy team was at all the sessions with the detainees. Period. That's what you can say because the language got changed. Also, there were lots of suicides at Guantanamo. So many people tried to kill themselves because it's a hellhole. This is, it's a hundred times worse than anyone was imagining. And... But suddenly, bingo, one day, there are no suicides. What happened? They stopped. There were, however, a huge surge in uh, manipulative, uh, self-injurious behaviors resulting in death. Lots of those. Lots more of those, but no suicides. You know, the world is made of words, and you can remake the world that way if you just kind of like tweak it, turn it, you know, just, okay, we'll just call it that instead of that. So uh, this work was about 
stories as much as, and two stories juxtaposing them. And I'm going to show you some images from it because it kind of wrapped its way all the way back around to music in the end, which was a really strange trip that this thing took. So uh, we did this um, project in New York. I'll show you a little bit of the program. So this is habeas corpus, the dates, and and uh, the Mohammed Al-Gharani is my collaborator. Descriptions of... Um, so, so what we did basically, I don't know if you can read this, I have chosen to be here virtually because I'm not allowed to come to this country and I have some things to say. This is Mohammed Al-Gharani. So this is about using technology to beam this guy in past the borders and see what would happen. You know, he can. he's not allowed to actually come in, but um, uh, so we, we bounced him in. And this also, so we built a big studio in West Africa and we had a big team there. And the over three days in early October, we, we built a statue uh, the size of the Lincoln Memorial. And um, we wrapped his image onto that statue. And um, how did you know he was the one to do this? I mean, it's obviously a very huge task. Obviously, you were introduced to him. By your uh, yeah. person, but yeah. you yourself in your. I, I spent a lot of time in, in Africa talking to him and just saying, Mohammed, you know what? Again, I, like the earlier thing, I, I said, What is your motivation in doing this? And he said, I, I want my motivation is to help my brothers in Guantanamo. And I said, Mohammed, I can't say this is going to help your brothers in Guantanamo. I mean, I can say that if Americans hear your story, as, as it is, that uh, there will be a number of people who uh, will hear it and a boy who's tortured and then thrown away at the end, thrown in a country. They don't even tell you where you are or didn't tell your family where you are. Just thrown away, no, no apology, no trial, no nothing. Thrown away. So, you know, there are a lot of Americans who want terrorists to fry, you know. You know? But um, there are also... Uh, the problem with that is that, that in Guantanamo Bay, there are very few people, two people were charged out of the thousand there. You know, the rest are just hearsay. It's somebody, after three years of being tortured in Guantanamo, says, I think all those guys over there, I think they might have been a Tora Bora. And that becomes the case. So it's all it's all about, you know, just making a little frame and stuffing people into it. So, uh, so I talked to Mohammed a lot and I said, you know, I... I, on the other hand, I think if Americans hear your story, there'll be a number of people who will, it won't be okay with them. It won't be okay that, that you know, there's a real blackout of information. We think we live in an information culture. What a joke. There's so much we don't know about what's going on. If you just scratch that surface, you know, you realize, whoa, this is this is insane. So anyway, I tried to scratch that surface a little bit. And and um, in talking to Mohammed, um, I owe it to the to war that one of my good friends now is a goat herder from Saudi Arabia. I have the war to thank for that, you know. But uh, if you be able to, and also technology, to be able to jump across and do something like that, for me was, a, 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 and, and, and it's a complicated thing to do. So we, we had a number of redundant systems that were, because we, because Homeland Security had already told us like, so we were able to do it anyway. So so in answer to your question, we talked a lot and, and 
and I tried to show him how it would work. I brought little models of figures with things projected on them, and I said, "This is how little, this is little, but it, you'll be big." And I was like, and I, I thought, "This is not getting across." But <laughs> but he he um, we became friends, and uh, here he is uh, captured and imprisoned at the age of fourteen. Mohammed Al Gharani was one of the youngest detainees at Guantanamo. He was held for seven years, released without charge by a U.S. federal judge. No explanation, no apology. Okay, so he was in this drill hall. Here we are. Uh, this is pretty small images. Um, this is from the program. His story, we we had a very, very complicated uh, legal um, documents, too, in case, in case people wanted to really drill down into the legality of it. And uh, so we had like 40-page legal brief as well as this, uh, his story. And uh, as he told it, he's also hilarious. He's really, he has a really great sense of humor. And I don't know how he was able to do that. I I would not do well in a situation like that. I kept thinking, like, what would that be like to just be... Uh, anyway, so... Did his, sorry, did his sense of humor play a role in this project? In his all? survival and in this project as well. Could be, because this was going to be silent witness sort of thing. But I realized quite quickly that this guy is really articulate. And he could, here we are building the statue. So it's like a kind of weird cubist project. You make a giant piece of material and you project onto it and you cut away everything that doesn't work. Now, you're not making a three-dimensional thing. You're making a screen. So you have to account for bending of lenses and images and camera angles. And and then you have to bend the, the number crunch on the way in, too. So it was really complicated to to uh, make this thing work. Seems like the Lincoln Memorial is in there. Yeah. That was somehow a model for what you wanted it to look well, like in the I, end. Well, I... Uh, uh, it's a seated figure, and I liked the sense of scale because it's um, at first it was going to be 1.6, which is the relationship of a small kid to an adult, and I liked the, that human relationship. And then they actually sent us too much foam, so <laughs> I thought, what if it's a little bigger? And so we just made it bigger. And the Park Avenue Army, as you can see, is is big, so um, we just made it bigger, and it turned out to be the size of the the scale of the Lincoln Memorial, which is four times human size. So it's, 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 it's still possible to relate as a person. Here's some of the ways we had to do this in the studio in, in uh, West Africa. Here we are uh, shooting it, and here's our West African team of DPs and, and uh, uh, production people and all the people involved. And then we also went to the uh, Gold Coast to look at um, some uh, of the prisons where since 1482, uh, it's been the same route, weirdly. You know, prisoners, uh, people captured in Africa, brought and held on the Gold Coast and where they're sold and, and used as transport and then taken to the Caribbean, just exactly Mohammed's um, uh, path. Uh, he um, uh, also um, was so uh, funny and and articulate that we we also made a film that we projected in a, in an adjoining room so that he could he, he spoke as a statue, which was really pretty awesome. <laughs> you know, you see this person sitting there, and then he starts speaking. Here's some some things from other 3D film projects. Uh, then we had a concert every night. So uh, we 
played with uh, Omar Suleiman and uh, also um, Meryl Garbus and Stuart Herwood, who's you playing. Um, we set up a, a big drone guitar thing, which is Lou Reed's guitars. Uh, yeah, so this the beginning of the concert, um, talking about what's going on. And of course, the lenses are really pretty crazy, showing you <laughs> the scale. Um, so the, it ended with a dance party. It was a, a video installation, but I wanted it to feel like a project that was had to do with freedom. And uh, we had, of course, a, a giant mirror ball, <laughs> which is, you know, just put this guy kind of in the star field. Um, one of the things I learned about this was never underestimate the audience because people came and they were, uh, we did not have an audio feed from Africa because I was really afraid someone is going to go, you terrorist. And he's had enough of that. He's had a tsunami of 15 years of people kind of going, you're so well, you know, but we did have a video feed with on a delay. So all what really blew his mind more than anything probably was, uh, first of all, his lawyer coming to, you know, re reach up to him virtually from New York to Africa. And and then to have Americans, um, uh, first of all, like a hundred people came to play instruments. They just said, I just want to play here. I just want to be here. So they came and they played with this giant drone sound, which was overwhelmingly loud, kind of like all these overtones, incredible sound. And people just came to play, sing, do one, some ballerinas came. It was just wild. It was, it was so wild. But what was really great was um, also these uh, people who saw the camera, they could see the camera up there. They knew that he could see them because it was a feed into the armory and they're they're going like this or they're they're playing their instruments or they're 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 doing this i was afraid it was going to be all selfie stuff but it was no it was like hey and and so many people who knew that they couldn't speak to him are going like i'm sorry it was so awesome it was like I thought, oh my God! And the next day, a bunch of lawyers who were representing him were in Guantanamo, and they um, took all these pictures, which they're not supposed to do, and took it down to Guantanamo and showed them to these guys. Now, Shakir Amer was a British, is a British resident who was swept up in the same scoop, went on the same plane to Guantanamo that Mohammed did. He was just released last week, which was like, you know, he's been in solitary for 15 years. So um, he was Mohammed's mentor. Um, and then we just heard from the lawyers that um, that next week there it will be supposedly announced that Guantanamo will be closed. Now, with the events of last Friday, I don't know. Because, you know, these things are going up and down like this. And it's a very, it's a political football as well. Um what does this have to do with music and expression and um, freedom? Well, a lot. And, you know, um, and I mean, I like imagery. I like things that I like stories. So I like music and I like really intense, intense, uh, uh, very loud stuff. So, so many of these things were, were um, things that, that combined all of, all of those elements. But in the end... Um, the thing that that I liked to, 
the best was ha- having a contact with someone from a, a part of the world uh, uh, who had such a different experience than mine that and to become friends with that person you know and to be uh, and to make something now Mohammed had never been called anything but a terrorist and uh, a, a detainee and a number and so this is the first time and this this kind of went pretty viral in the in the press and it was covered from art magazines to Al Jazeera it was all mid the whole spectrum and um, were you surprised by that i mean you said yes. never underestimate the audience it yes. seems like you're yeah. pretty surprised by the response to i was i was because we were really afraid first of all we'd gotten a number of threats and that made me very anxious um uh but also you know the british lawyers said oh don't worry about it. that guy's just a blowhard he's never going to do anything i thought yeah that's london i live in new york where people have guns and they they use them. You know, so I was really nervous about this. I was very I didn't realize it until the end that it was like <gasps> or also Fox News comes and goes, What are you an artist does this? We should go back to making music. What are you doing doing politics? You know? Or you're working with a terrorist. Why would you you know, it's like stuff like that. That was my worst nightmare. Instead, a number of people started talking about habeas corpus and Guantanamo. Obama sent his whole Guantanamo team. To, to see this, it, it began re- being referred to in political artic- articles. Pre-habeas corpus at the armory, it was like this. Post, it was like, it was like whoa. I had not expected that at all. So that was kind of blowing my mind, really. But the, also the other thing was uh, Cueco Mandela, who was Mandela's uh, grandson, came and hung out at the at this thing. And, and he was... Um, uh, so we... we uh, called uh, we we talked to Mohammed and we said you know he's he's here and he said, he said you mean I'm I'm being projected onto a monument size the size of a, the American president who freed the slaves and Cueco Mandela is here saying um thanking me for being brave I was like yep yeah. he was just like the only time Mohammed would cry was when he just realized that um. When he talked about people who helped him, basically Shakira Amir, who gave him a lot of um, help in prison and taught him Mandela's words. And so they couldn't have books, but they memorized it. So uh, it wasn't when he talked about how he'd been tortured, but people who had helped him, people who had listened to his story. So um, it was, I I had never just dove into something that, that sort of big of a minefield before <laughs> but uh, I, I was and you did make this album Homeland though which was very yeah but Homeland outspoken. Security didn't vet it you know <laughs> so this one they were like there were all sorts of people around here going you know you know you realize you, you, you realize you live in a surveillance culture and then you you see them you know then you see them and that's a different thing when you see them when they're just kind of back there as an idea or, you know, ghosts of some kind, you know, so you're not so worried, but then you see them, and they're there. And so when I heard about this um, uh, Friday night here, I was like, oh, boy, let's just see what's going to happen now and try to make something um, that doesn't go the way that that went, 
You know, there must be some people. And those people are artists and musicians, the people who can um, resist the, the, the knee-jerk thing of revenge. These people are crazy monsters who are you know, attacking our value system. And you're like, really? Are you sure that's what's going on? What would that what would a motivation be for someone who does this? I'm not saying that terrorism isn't reprehensible. It is. Killing people is reprehensible. It's like I'm not saying that this is not really just the worst thing you could do. But if you want to understand the worst thing you could do, try to understand it. You know, try to see what it what it might be and what might have how it it might be in response to something else. Earlier, you talked a little bit about how the language is is getting in the motivation, how you could get a person to believe these things. And I'm wondering um, about your use of language through the years in work. I mean, you talk about it all the time. You've said language is a virus. You've talked about language. Well, Bruno said that. I was yes, quoting him. Sorry, you were quoting <laughs> yeah, Burroughs. Yeah. Um, Language seems to be one of the most important things in general, I think, in your work. It is. And and stories and narrative structure. And so that's what drew me to this initially as well. These really clashing stories. And also it's what the film I just finished is about. It's called Heart of a Dog. And it's a collection of stories that have um, uh, the, the initial sort of on the surface about people and dogs and and but really actually what is a story and how do you tell it everyone for example has their childhood story and what kind of kid were you and you have like a two sentence story i was a punk i was a, i was a loner i was whatever and it's and it's short and uh so what happens when you repeat that and what happens when you start to sort of say it too often or you know, is it, how accurate is it? And people aren't asking you that question to really ask you what kind of kid you were there. Cause it's not the question of a psychiatrist who, who would say, what kind of childhood did you have? And then that's a seven year answer. But it's the kind of question that is like, how, how are you doing? Somebody goes, great. How are you? It's not the people do not want to know how you're doing when they ask you that, obviously. They really hope you don't tell them how they're how you're doing because it's like, and and it's not about that anyway. It's just social glue. It's like, so it's, you say that you know, well, I don't know. It's just something we we do. It's not like really storytelling. But so um, anyway, uh, the uh, the film is uh, focuses on on um, what stories are for and how you. Um, shape the world with with that and how you choose to i mean you know how you can describe a day and and it's just kind of these events that happen and then as soon as you really start describe it you you realize oh that was a really horrible day or or and then it gets sort of um uh even more horrible as you describe it <laughs> and or whatever and you know same with uh, uh with language in general so so it it's another sort of layer of information on top of what's what's going on the movie is the first time you've done something like that specifically um in terms of film how are you did you find yourself telling stories differently than you have in the past these a lot of the stories that are in my work are sort of autobiographical things and um 
there is um, there's one that's called a story about a story, and um, I can tell you the best way to tell you about this is to tell you the story. Uh, if I can remember, it's sort of okay. So this is a, one of my kind of go-to childhood stories, or it used to be. You know, of um, when I was twelve, I was. Um, I thought adults were idiots. I mean, I think most 12-year-olds think that anyway. You know, it's like you're kind of embarrassed to be around them. They're just, ugh, just cringe, you know. So I'm sure you remember being 12. and it's like, So anyway, I was that kind of 12-year-old. And I was also part of a very big family with um, uh, eight kids. And so I, I needed a way to, like, I was showing off just trying to get some attention once in a while. So I was at a... Uh, swimming pool and I decided I was going to do a flip off the uh, off the high board and uh, you know I'd never done a flip before but I thought you know how hard can that be you just somersault straighten out before you hit the pool and so so I went up and I did it and I but I um I I missed the pool and I landed like on the concrete edge and I broke my back and so I spent a couple months in the children's ward in the hospital and um, this was uh, this place where I, I was in traction and basically, you know, um, with the kids who were in the burn unit. And the burn unit was, you were in these, they were kind of in these rotating rotisseries sort of, and they would cr- crank you around and so that the burns could be bathed in these cool liquids. And I remember a lot about that time because, you know, when especially when they, one of the doctors came and he said, you will not be able to walk again. And I remember thinking, this guy is an idiot. I mean, is he even a doctor? I don't know. I mean, but I could not speak, so I couldn't say that stuff. I was just thinking that. I was like, I'm going to move my feet. I just focused on it. And then there were these volunteers who would come and read every afternoon, which was really torture because they'd be like, the gray rabbit was hopping down the road and guess where he went? Well, nobody knows. The farmer doesn't know. The farmer's wife doesn't know. You know, and you know, and, now, at the time I was reading like Tales of Two Cities and Crime and Punishment, you know, so the gray rabbit stories were like a really, like a slow torture. Now, anyway, um, I did finally walk. I had to wear a brace like this, a metal brace up to my neck all around the year for two years. I could walk around like that. Really great when you're 12 to 14, just the kind of time you want to geek out. You know? so, uh, and, I, and I was like kind of proud of it because Kennedy had um, back problems too. He was the president. So I was like, okay, I'm good. I'm good. And anyway... Um, so, and now one day, uh, I was in, somebody asked me what my childhood was like, and I was telling them the story about the um, breaking my back and and being in the ward, and suddenly it came to sound. It was this memory of sound. I was it, it was the story. I was saying, you know, the way it went, and the rotisseries and the kids in the rotisseries, and suddenly. I I was completely back in the in the in the ward, and I remembered all of the missing parts, and it was you know it was the way the ward sounded at night, and it was the sounds of all these children crying and screaming, 
And it was these sounds that, that children make when they're dying. And I remembered then the rest of it, of how uh, the smell of medicine and how incredibly afraid I was. And how the nurses, they just make up the beds. They would not talk about the kids who died during the night. <laughs> they would just... And so uh, I think that that is... I, I realized that I cleaned this, this story up just the way the nurses had. That I'd forgotten so much of it, you know. And I, and I realized that that's the, the, really the creepiest thing about stories. Is you get your story, you tell your story, you repeat your story. And every time you tell it... You forget it more. And so that story is, is, is uh, uh, an example of, of um, what happens when you use language to... I mean, you're never really telling a story. You're telling you're, you're, you're in the present now. For example, in that way, I was telling the story of, of a 12-year-old telling that story. You tell the story you can tell. And when you're 12, you can't realize, you know, you can't really tell that story because adults are idiots. They put all these kids together in this ward and, you know, 12-year-olds can't deal with people dying right next to them at night. It's really hard to... So you decide, I'm going to be making fun of the doctors, you know, because it's the only thing you can... only way you can get to that. So anyway, uh, the, the film goes through many different layers of how you use language to, to uh, uh, get around in the world. <laughs> what other sounds do you remember from your childhood? Well, I got to use a lot of those in, in uh, the film in a way because uh, I suddenly started remembering how important sound is as a, uh, as a, um, as a, memory tool, I guess. I mean, not that I sit around trying to think about my past. I don't really do that. But, I, but the sound, I did have a scene of um, ice skating, and I, was, uh, I remembered that sound as just one of the great sounds. Of the world. I mean, I, I grew up in the Midwest in the, in the United States, and so it was all sky, and it was all, like, really freezing. The winters were just, like, insanely cold. And so these lost winter worlds were, were you know, would also come back to me through sound of, like, the sound of blades on skates and kids, like, ah, ah, you know, this incredible um, sound of, of blades uh, in, in uh, surround sound, you know. Uh, so... Uh, One of your first works, I think, or uh, early on, was you in uh, ice skates yeah, yeah. Uh, playing the violin. Yeah. This was a... Um, uh, a I'm supposed to do a um, retrospective book, and so actually, because of what you just said, ice is going to be one of the chapters of it, because it really is somehow... Uh, and and it also is the, is the end of the film, too, because there was another... Uh, story that ended the film, which was also a childhood story, which was like um, I um, had been um, taking my little brothers to the movie in a stroller and coming back over this frozen lake, and I decided to take them to the island in the on the lake and look at the moon. So I got skating up. I was about eight, and they were two identical twins. So close to the island and suddenly the ice broke and the stroller sank into the water I was like 
whoa. Uh, my first thought is, you know, like, mom's going to kill me. This is like, because their little balls in their hats are sinking below the water. I'm like, oh. You know, so, I, um, so I ripped off my jacket. I dove down. I got Craig and pulled him up, threw him on the ice, and I dove back down again. And the slow stroller had slipped down the muddy bank of the of the a sloping, I you know of the of the uh, of the slope, and I couldn't find the stroller. So finally, I found it, and Phil was in, and I I. He strapped in and pulled him up, and I ran home with both of these guys. Like, and I ran in, and I was described as. I said, told my mother what had happened, and she, she said, um, "What a wonderful swimmer you are!" And I didn't know you could dive like that. And that was, that kind of like changed my life right, right there in a lot of ways because. Um, you know, she had waited a little bit because obviously most parents are kind of, you almost drowned your brother. I was like, what are, you, what are you thinking? What are you doing? You know, but she, you know, uh, I had had waited that second to kind of think, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? This is like really bad situation. <laughs> you know, And she chose something really, it, it changed my life to say that. You know, suddenly I'm, of course, it gave me a whole lot of guilt because I had almost drowned my brothers, you know, and suddenly I'm a, I'm a hero. <laughs> Not really. So anyway, Languages of Fibers from Outer Space was William Burroughs. And I always thought that was a really crazy and great thing for a writer to say that language is a disease communicable by mouth. You know, it's a pretty wild thing to say. Uh, so, um, uh, but it's true, you know, you you have the ultimate control when you shape something that way. You can really change the world by just kind of just making the, the changing the, the way that you're describing it. Looking looking maybe like on the other side of it or however, you know. On that uncertain note. <laughs> Thank you so the much. The note of doubt. <laughs> Thanks so much for like, like I've so, been yeah. yakking all afternoon. It's really fun. Thank you. Laura. Hey, this is Todd Burns again. Thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom. Uh, before you go, I just wanted to take a moment to tell you about the Academy. The Red Bull Music Academy is a world traveling series of music workshops and festivals. Almost every year since 1998, we've done the main Academy event in one city. The lecture you just heard, for instance, was from the Academy in Paris. But we do events uh, around the world throughout the year. And among other things, we've got an online radio station and an online magazine. In short, it's a lot of stuff, uh, but it's all pretty cool, in my opinion, anyway. Uh, if you want to find out more for yourself, you can check us out at redbullmusicacademy.com. <laughs>